You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Today I have a very special guest. Her name is Monique Dusan, and she's one of the founders of the Center for Biblical Unity and also a new friend of mine. We both actually contributed to Thaddeus Williams's book, Confronting Justice Without Compromising Truth. And we're both on this national tour with Stand to Reason, the Reality Apologetics Conference, Youth Conference. So uh, it's your student conference. So I'm so excited to have her on the show. Welcome, Monique. Hi, thanks for having me. And you know what? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there. Those are my arms on the cover of that book. Oh, those are yours? Yes. Oh, nice. Yes. I hope you got extra pay for that. Are you getting royalties? You know, maybe I'll talk to Thaddeus about it later. <laughs> I'm not bitter. Yeah. So our kind of our world sort of just collided like through this book and through the reality conference. We, we've already done um, two cities. We did Costa Mesa and Seattle, and then we're going to Minneapolis next and then to Dallas and then to Atlanta. Yeah, uh, Atlanta or Augusta, Georgia. Augusta, yes, not Atlanta. Uh, In Philadelphia. And by the way, if you guys want to know the dates for that, um, we'll put a link below for the reality uh, conference with Stand to Reason. But so let's, so you, Monique, you used to be an apologist for critical race theory for many, many years and the social justice gospel. And then you had this kind of major conversion. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But before we do, let's talk about, your, I just want to get some of your background. So where were you raised? What was that like? How, and how did that affect the way you saw race, the way you saw white people? Like what, how, talk, talk about that. Yes. Well, I was raised in South Central Los Angeles and gosh, I was raised during um, or around the time of the Rodney King riots. And so in growing up around that time, we had a, a murder down there of a young girl named Latasha Harlins. She was killed by a Korean store owner. So there was the conversation of the relationship between Blacks and Koreans and the animosity that was sparking there. There was a conversation of Black and white because of Rodney King and the four police officers that beat him. There was also the conversation of South African apartheid. And so there was a lot of conversations around race, either, you know, with my mom or in school and just looking at who we were as Black people. What does it mean to be Black? What are the the impediments almost to, to being Black? You know, how hard do I have to work in the world itself as a Black woman? And so, gosh, when the Rodney King riots happened, I think that was the culmination of of many moments of conversation um 
it with different adults that I was around who reminded me that to be black meant that I had to work twice as hard. To be black meant that white people thought that they could treat you a certain way, that racism was always going to be here, that we didn't trust white people. And so that was just, I feel like the conversation that I grew up in and around during that time. And I grew up with a, a single mom. I have four, no, I have three, sorry. Sometimes we can, we can multiply. I have three <laughs> siblings. And at that time, yeah, my, my younger sisters were very young. Actually, only one was born um, during that time. And I have a brother who's in between me and one sister. And so this was, this was just our life. You know, the riots happened on the street that I lived on. I forgot and what so, year what year were the riots? Is that the riots were 91. 91, right. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So um I remember watching the police officers like fleeing away with, you know, different champagne bottles and liquor bottles through their front windshields, police officers with, you know, driving away bloodied and things like that. And so that was that was much of the reality that I grew up in and a lot of the conversation that I grew up with. And I think, uh, tell me if I'm correct, but South Central L.A., it was, it was called South Central L.A. back in the day. And I think after the Rodney King riots and all the, the verdict and all, the, all that stuff, they changed the name of the city to South L.A. Is that correct? Yes, but I think that was a couple you know, years after. Yeah. Now it's just like South L.A., there's you know, gentrification's under, underway and there are you know, a lot of um, businesses that are being remodeled. And so now it's South L.A. and there are many places in South L.A. that are up and coming and being revitalized. But when I was there, it was South, South Central L.A. I forgot, um, there was a rapper who like, there were quite a few rappers who talked about South Central L.A., but the level of violence there was actually- Yeah, who was the guy, who was the rapper uh, today was just today was a good day what was that song it was about south I believe central today was a good day um yeah I'm, was... I'm losing all my street cred right now I... but i remember like um there was a there was um he basically um, in the song he says i did t- i didn't have to use my ak today was a good day like that's how yes. That's how, ra- you know, radical it was in South Central, you know. But the verse that I'm thinking about, it, because it, it, it was completely true. Um, there's a verse that was, um, and I don't think it's in this song, but it said, um, L.A., home of the body bag. You want to die, wear the wrong color rag. And yeah. that's what was happening. The gang violence was out of control. Um, I remember living in one area that was, um, ruled by the Hoover Crips. And then I remember moving to another area that was ruled by Piru. And so these, like, this is just the way that I grew up. And it, it wasn't odd to me. This was life. This was life for all of the kids who lived, you know, in my area. And how did you feel? I mean, did you have active kind of animosity towards white people at, when you were growing up? No, because I didn't know any. I mean, my teachers, I had, I had like, I had, I don't even know that I have had, let's see, at that time, I may have had one white teacher and she was my first grade teacher actually. But from there on, you know, like my, my fifth grade teacher, you know, proclaimed that she was a black Panther and, you know, my sixth grade teacher was awesome and amazing. I'm still in contact with her, but she was definitely, um, very intentional about making sure that we understood, you know, what it meant to be black and our black history and things like that. And I love that. 
but I also didn't have much interaction with anyone who was white because there were no white kids at my school. Um, I didn't have white teachers, so I didn't have white friends. Well, speaking of friends, I was going to ask you about that, um, about the TV show Friends, because, I mean, how did you feel as growing up, you know, as a preteen, as a teenager, kind of living in a world where every t- most TV shows, most movies were all white, like Friends, Seinfeld, you know, Will and Grace, like all these TV shows was like the cast. I mean, basically every movie and every TV show, the cast was fully white. Right. So d- how did that how did that affect you? Or like, did you did you even acknowledge that or notice that? Or what? I mean, what were your thoughts about that? So growing up, we were black. Like we listened to black music or R&B. So it was Anita Baker. Um, for me, a lot of Lauren Hill. There were SWV, Destiny's Child. Um, gosh, Stephanie Mills. I can go on and on. Um, yeah, Luther Vandross, on and on and on. And when it came to TV shows, it was things like Family Matters, The Cosby Show. Um, I remember watching... Um, like this Vicky the Robot show. I don't even remember what it was called. Small World, I think, or Small yeah. Wonder. But that was the the anomaly. Like that was that wasn't happening every day. We were either watching cartoons or I was watching shows that were that had people who looked more like me, or I was outside playing. And like Pauline, my mother, she was not having you just in the house. So I wasn't watching Will and Grace. I wasn't watching Friends or, um, you know, a lot of those kind of shows. Now, when I grew up and um, was a bit older, I think I I did watch Will and Grace. That was my show. (laughs) But, um, (laughs) you know, I still never watched Friends. And I didn't watch Friends because I felt like there was nothing that related to me on Friends. Right. Especially the early years. I think um, one of the characters ended up having a black girlfriend later on. But by that time, you know, I I was already out of, you know, even wanting to see it. I never watched Seinfeld. I still don't understand Seinfeld. Um, <laughs> I do not understand Seinfeld. It's very Borscht Belt humor. It's a very specific kind of humor. That is, I don't think it's that funny, actually. But yeah. yeah I, but I know people who will, you need to see Seinfeld. And I'm just like, no. I don't, and not even because of the right stuff anymore. I just don't think it's funny. But what about movies? I mean, did you, did you go see movies like big Hollywood movies that, you know, were like, I mean, I just think of uh, like, I'm thinking of just like St. Elmo's, St. Elmo's fire in the eighties, but there, there are so many others in the nineties and later that were just all white casts. Did you ever go to movies? So my very first movie was um, boys in the hood. Oh, uh huh. There you go. Yeah, I'm telling you. And I remember I I watched. I went to a theater in the jungles of L.A. There's an area in, uh, in L.A. called the Jungles, and it's now a bank. But um, that was uh, my first movie. I remember going to see things like Love and Basketball, or um, gosh, majority black movies. Like when when they would come out, my mom wasn't a big movie person. And so I'm sure that, and I'm probably just forgetting, I'm sure she did take us to like drive-ins because I do remember going to the drive-in, but um, I don't remember a lot of, you know, quote unquote white movies or movies with more white cast. I do remember, you know, sitting down with friends when I became older and, you know, watching things that had more people who looked like me in it. But yeah, I would have to think really hard. Like, um, 
I think I've only seen like a piece of the Titanic. Um, a lot of the movies that people would think are like kind of the American staples I have not seen. And so were you, were you raised in a Christian home and when did you, and also when did you become a Christian? How did that happen? Yeah. So my grandmother would take me to church with her when I was young and it was black church. I mean, when I say black church, like it was the full experience, people shouting. Um, it was about like 10 people in the congregation. Everybody was related to each other. It was, it was the full experience, but I was young. I was, gosh, probably between the ages of maybe two to eight, two to nine. My mom wasn't saved at the time. And when my grandmother, my grandmother got sick when I was about 10 and she eventually passed when I was about 13. And so from that time up until I was 16, I didn't go to church. I didn't have a relationship with God. Even in going to church with my grandmother, there was so much that I didn't understand that, you know, I never, you know, thought about God. I never had a relationship with the Lord or anything like that. She did teach me, you know, the Lord's prayer. She taught me um, the 23rd Psalm and things like that. But at 16, I was in high school and a friend of mine invited me to go to youth group. And I went to youth group and I would go like weekly was on Wednesday nights. I would go weekly for a very long time before I decided that, yes, I want to have a relationship with the Lord. Like I want to, to know the Lord as a a Lord and savior for me. Wow. And so then you end up going to a Christian university, Biola university, which is my alma mater. I went to seminary at Talbot. So what was that experience like going And how did you even decide to go to Biola? Like, how did that happen? So uh, I went to a women's conference with my church. And um, I'm not sure if many people know, but I actually dropped out of school. The last grade that I successfully completed was ninth grade. In 10th grade, I went and because of too many absences, I wasn't passed on. And so I decided that I wasn't going to go back because I just couldn't deal with, you know, a lot of the the factors that led to me dropping out anyway. And so I um, went back and got my GED, but in going to Biola, I went, I went to a women's retreat through my church and I had to be 20 or so, 19, 20. And the woman who spoke at my church was like, you really should check out Biola University. And there were four of us who she, you know, had this conversation with. And three of my friends really went back and we just began to look at Biola and decided that we would all go together. And that's, that's how it happened. We all applied and we all got in together. I, I had to take some extra steps. I had to go and get my GED and then get 27 units of um, like transfer credit from a junior college. And I did that in about, I want to say it was close to a year's time, maybe, um, maybe a little over a year. And then I applied to Biola. It was the only school I applied to. I got in and my time at Biola was unique. We were, you know, as, as Black women, we were definitely in the minority. I think any Black student or minority student was definitely in the minority. And it could be felt at times. I don't know that um, we had ever or I had ever spent that much time around white people. And so, and I don't know that white people had ever spent that much time around someone who was Black. So there were things that would happen. Like I would blow dry my hair and the smoke alarms would go off. And they <laughs> 
<laughs> what what happened? Excuse me, what's going on? You know, we um, I served as a RA, a resident assistant, and I would be blasting at this time more Christian music, but I could also be caught, you know, blasting Missy Elliott or Lauren Hill or Tupac. And people were like, oh my goodness, like, why are we listening to this music? What's going on? Um, it, it was unique also in that a lot of what, as a sociology major, a lot of what I had learned at home or on the streets of LA was kind of um, confirmed through things like statistics or um, the lectures that I would hear through some of my, my sociology professors. And so, you know, it for me, it confirmed what I had been taught at home that there is a glass ceiling. There are, you know, definite structures in place that are going to keep Black people down, that, um, you know, white people are racist and they don't care about the elevation of Black people. And so that is, that's what was confirmed. That was a lot of what, you know, um, my textbooks talked about, but my textbooks were, again, written from a certain slant or angle. And so when I left Biola, I left with the mission of doing social work to be able to elevate the, not just the voices, but the life experience of Black and Brown kids. So you're saying at Biola in a Christian, evangelical Christian university, the professors in the sociology department were basically pushing critical race theory or pushing this, 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 that kind of worldview, right? Or is- yes. Yeah. So that was, I would say, in the, especially in the sociology department, I don't, I'm not too sure about other departments, but that was the, the come from that, you know, without going into like, I feel like completely saying everything is oppressed and oppressor. There was a slant in which um, Black people were in one category or minorities were in one category and white people were in a different category. I can look at, you know, doing racial reconciliation chapels and the things that needed to go into, you know, how do races reconcile? Re- racial reconciliation wasn't something that was accomplished because of the work of Jesus. It was something that we had to strive toward. Right. And then you, after Biola, you ended up going into the mission field in Africa. And so I think it was in South Africa. What, yeah. what led you to that? And what was that like? How did that all kind of affect you? Or what, what was it like to do that? So I went into the mission field in South Africa after being invited to go on a trip to South Africa. And I ended up going back, I think, every year for about four years. And in on my last trip, I was just like, you know what? It would just be so much easier if I just lived here and I could work with the students that I'm working with full time. So during my time in South Africa, I worked in a Black township with the Kosa people, the Kosa tribe. And then I would also work in an area called the Cape Flats with colored people. Now, after moving there, my work eventually just focused on the area in the Cape Flats with colored people. But it were it was kids in, and adults who were severely impacted by trauma and gang violence and drugs in either the township or the, the Cape Flats. But in going there, one of the things that I realized 
or I thought I realized was that a lot of what was happening in these communities was because of whiteness. It was because of apartheid. It was because there was no space for non-white people to be elevated or to use their voice or to get jobs and things like that. And while some of that, you know, could be lingering effects from apartheid, I don't, you know, this side of it, I don't see that, you know, every white person in South Africa is racist and trying to keep down every black and colored person. I also look at the colored community where I spent the most time, I spent four and a half years there. And I can honestly say that a lot of the issues that are impacting the colored community come because of choice. Much like I would say we see here in, in the States, a lot of, a lot of issues that um, surround certain, certain groups or certain cultures is due to a lot of choice. Now, explain that. What do you mean by choice? Well, okay, so hold on. It depends on how far, you, how far deep you want me to go, because I, if I talk about Black culture and choice... <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole can of worms. It's a whole can. Well, just kind of give us give us okay. a, an idea of what that means. Okay. So when I look at culture and choice, I think some of the issues that we see here in America are blamed on whiteness. And so when you look at the Black community, you have certain Christian leaders and secular leaders who would say things like, well, we can't talk about abortion rates until we talk about whiteness and systemic racism. Well, actually, we can whiteness is not the the issue when it comes to abortion. To me, that's personal choice. Whiteness didn't, you know, cause me to have sex out of wedlock. Whiteness also does not cause me to make the moral choice to have an abortion. And so one of the things that I, I saw in South Africa was you know, that there were large rates of um, of out, like out of wedlock births. There were large rates of drug addiction, large rates of murder from gang violence and things like that. Well, I can't look and say, well, I'm going to blame all of this on apartheid. I'm going to continue to blame whiteness for the choice that many people are making. Right. But at some point we have to decouple choice and whiteness. We have to be able to look at these things in nuanced ways and say, look, you know, your choices are still your choices, no matter what may be um, impacting or what you may think is impacting you. So there's uh, so you're saying there is an issue of personal responsibility. Yes. Personal responsibility is a good way to put it. Yeah. And so and then um, you is this fair to say you were at this time in your life, you were fully on board with critical race theory. Yeah, I was definitely on board with with the critical race theory framework, with the the idea of Black people being marginalized or oppressed, especially here in the States. Um, the idea that Black people were being plucked off, you know, it wasn't safe for us. We needed to always make sure that we are, um, you know, aware and vigilant, speaking out against systems of racism or individual acts of racism. And what, just explain briefly, what is critical race theory and kind of why is it so um, kind of, why is it such a big issue right now? Where did it kind of, how it kind of feels like it just kind of came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. Obviously it didn't, but I know it comes from a larger umbrella of critical theory, but 
it, tell us what critical race theory is generally and, and how, why it's so uh, dominant today. Yeah, so I definitely want to be as gracious as possible to the framework and those who uphold the framework. I don't want to ever be accused of like, well, that's not what it is, even though people will say no matter what, like, that's not what it is. Critical race theory actually started out as a legal framework in the late 70s with Derrick Bell. And so you have the end of the civil rights acts, the civil rights movement, and people were not seeing, legal scholars weren't seeing the results within the legal realm that they thought they would see after the, the passing of the civil rights acts or civil rights laws. And so Derek Bell began to take a, a critical look into the legal fields and say, what's going on in regards to you know, race and racism? Well, if you look at his protege or the people who um, came after him or actually worked in, in conjunction with him to some degree, you get Mari Matsuda, um, Kimberly Crenshaw, Richard Delgado, um, Gene Stefanczyk. And there was a group, along with Derek Bell, a group who in the late 80s came up with critical race theory to take a critical look into society and see where is race and racism prevailing and why is it prevailing? How are um, systems working to maintain the popular culture, the majority culture, and yet um, marginalize people of color. And so it's just a critical look into society based on race to see where racism exists. I think that that could be a good thing. Like, hey, look, we can look into society and say, hey, where is racism happening? Where are people being oppressed or marginalized? That's awesome. How can I work, you know, to to work against that? Unfortunately, the um what critical race theory also does is it keeps us in our tribal groups. Even though I know much of the work surrounding critical race theory and many of the scholars of critical race theory would say, well, no, it's really working to to unify um, yeah, unify and get rid of race, the concept of race, because race is a social construct. What it actually does when we see the rubber meeting the road is that it does keep people in their, their special groups, their tribal groups. It also automatically assumes that racism is taking place. It assumes that racism is endemic, that it's embedded within the structure of America. That is not necessarily proven assertion, it is just asserted that racism must always be happening. It also looks at things like the Black experience or narrative, and it upholds that even over fact. And so when you look at the tenets of critical race theory, one, I don't believe that it always, um, it always it always presents itself from a place that is factual, but it makes a lot of assumptions. And, and based on these assumptions, we are kept in our tribal groupings, never really to, to unify or connect unless one group does a ton of work. Now, in Christianity, I would just say, you know, there's so much that, that the scriptures speak to that talk about our unity or, or our reconciliation. And it's a better hope than critical race theory ever will be in regards to bringing people together. Yeah, critical race theory. I mean, it's a secular humanist. It comes from a yeah. secular humanist place, and it also comes from Marxist roots. And 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 Karl Marx, it was all about class struggle. But in critical race theory, it's all about racial struggle, struggle. and racial mm-hmm. tension. So it kind of shifted, and so it is. It's a secular humanist attempt at sort of a utopian future. And though we know we know from the 20th century that that always fails. Yes. But, 
but at the, on the, by the same token, what, I mean, are there any, you know, benefit, have there been benefits? Have you seen improvements in race relations at all or improvement? Because I, I mean, I've noticed, you know, obviously, you know, some things obviously in TV and movies, there's more representation of, of blacks and there's, it seems like this kind of like cultural convulsion really, you know, the Black Lives Matter and CRT, et cetera, you know, for all their faults and for, for their kind of secular Marxist world uh, roots, there does seem to be a shift in, in society, in, in the way, uh, even in, in government and, and movies and TV and media, there seems to be this kind of, as, you, as we, you know, an elevation of blacks. So, I mean, would you agree with that? I, I guess my question would be, is it a direct result of critical race theory or as, um, as things like Jim Crow laws changed and the civil rights movement happened and people became more integrated in their communities, did these things just naturally happen because the hearts of man changed or because people were used to seeing other people in their neighborhood and it was a natural progression? I don't know that I can go back and say, well, you know, statistically, we see that critical race theory was used in the motion picture industry. Now we have this result. I haven't seen statistics that that actually prove that claim. What I have seen, um, or I think what I see, and again, I probably need to do more, more statistical research on it, but what I see with my physical eye is the separation of people into their separate groups based on a lot of the narrative of, of critical race theory or a lot of the tenets of critical race theory. Yeah, and... And so how did you, because, you know, obviously for a long time, you were a pro CRT, pro critical race theory, and you were totally on board with that worldview as even as a Christian. So what changed in you? What happened? What was your kind of conversion moment? And how did that happen? Oh, there were quite a few. Um, I'm stubborn. So, you know, it just, (laughs) it it takes a while. Um, but I moved home from South Africa in 2018 and I moved home with PTSD, mission field induced PTSD. And in coming home and not really sure where I was going to land, where I was going to live, my ministry partner, Krista, we were not ministry partners at the time. Um, she and her husband and her, her family actually invited me to come and stay with them. And I was going to stay for three months and, you know, in that time, kind of get up on my feet and figure out. But wait, life. let me ask you, what, what, uh-huh. so what, what caused the PTSD just being in South Africa? Oh, you just all up in my business. <laughs> my goodness gracious. Okay. Oh, well, you so, just mentioned it so, you know, briefly, but we need to know what's the, P- okay. where did it come from? So I had a couple of attacks on the mission field. Um, I had someone try to attack me when I was in my car. I was able to drive away, thankfully. I had um, people trying to break into my home around midnight one night when I was actually in my home with the lights on. You know, you're like your sliding glass door. Well, if you like shake it, and I'm not sure if the ones in America are like this, but those, if you shake it and rattle it enough, it'll pop off of the slider. And so they were trying to, it takes two people, um, but they were trying to slide it and get it off. And so there was that. And then I actually had a death threat 
made against me and it was deemed to be credible. And so, uh, gosh, the death threat happened on May 23rd. I already had tickets to come home to see my nephew graduate. And on June 3rd, when I flew out, is um, the last time that I was ever in South Africa. After I came back home, I had a couple of dissociative episodes. And it was deemed at that time that I should not be going back to the mission field. And there were a ton of conversations. The, the organization that I was with was a leadership or is a leadership organization. And their founder is amazing and supportive. And so, yeah, I was just now thinking I was going to be, you know, traveling for 10 days and then going home to South Africa. I actually traveled to America with a travel size suitcase, like the one you put in the overhead bin on the plane. And that was all I had. And I never went back. Wow. And so, okay. So fast forward to you, you move in with Krista and her husband and what happens? So I'm moving with Krista and her husband and they're talking about like, let's make America great again. We're Republicans. <laughs> and I am like, what in the what? No, I, cause I'm a Democrat and I'm black all the way. America has never been great for me. And through, I think through a conversation, a lot of conversations, we've had hundreds of conversations that actually turned into arguments between Krista and I about white and black, about race, justice, unity, all of these things, the way that I saw Christianity, black Jesus, Jesus being a social justice warrior. Um, those things began to kind of shift my, my theology, understanding like, well, what does the scripture say? Because I knew some scripture, but I didn't know it in context. And then I had an intern who, um, I, as I started working, I had an intern and she came to, to work one day, like just in tears. And when I asked her what was going on, she began to just explain all of the racial unrest in her university and how the black students and, and just students of color were calling for white professors, their white president, all of these people who were white to step down to relinquish their power. And to to like relinquish their whiteness and repent of their whiteness and all of this. And so that I think those two things, like all of my conversations with Krista and then my intern who came to work, um, just recounting like all of her struggles in her university. And I think that day she had been told that she couldn't speak in class because she was white. And if she spoke in class, she would only be speaking from her privilege. And so at that point, I began to really just ask the Lord, like, what are we supposed to, what am I supposed to do? Like, what's wrong with this? Now, at the same time, I am praying, praying, like I'm asking the Lord, like, Lord, what, what's going on here? But still praying that Krista and her husband would repent of their whiteness and divest <laughs> themselves from their whiteness because <laughs> this is still right. And in the middle of it, the Lord was like, you need to repent. Your heart is like hard with racism and the, and the social justice narrative was never going to bring us to unity, but it took a while for me to, to get there. Like that didn't happen overnight. Um, and so that's what, what led to my conversion experience. A lot of conversations with and arguments with Krista, an intern um, who was really berated at her university because of the color of her skin. And then, you know, the Lord just nudging my heart to, to repent. Yeah. And that, it seems to be what's going on now in culture with CRT and BLM and uh, even cancel culture there. It's so anti-biblical because there's no forgiveness. And I think of the gospels and I think of Matthew and when Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. So he's asking Jesus, how, 
how, how many times should I forgive my brother? And he's like seven times. And Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven, <laughs> like yes. kind of a of, of like the, the number of fullness or completeness. And so that, that's the, that is the, for me, the biggest difference between this kind of secular humanist, these secular humanist worldviews versus a biblical worldview where there is forgiveness, there is redemption, where in, in these in these worldviews, there is no forgiveness or redemption. There's none. And even in the conversation, I'm not sure if you remember the guy, um, Botham Jean. I think he was the one who was killed by, um, in, his, in his apartment by the white police officer, female police officer. And she walked in thinking it was her apartment and she shot him. Well, at her sentencing, the brother of Botham Jean um, walked up and hugged her and said he forgave her. And like Black Twitter went crazy because they were like, we don't just offer our forgiveness so readily. Black forgiveness is not something that just can be thrown before white people. And I'm like, you know, that's not what we learn. That's not, that's not how Christ has taught us. You know, that's not what we learn in, in the scriptures. How often should we forgive seven times 70? And, you know, the idea that there is one group of people who really can't do enough. There is no absolution. There is no, you know, salvation without works. Yeah. So it's kind of like permanent penance. Yeah. <laughs> Self-flagellation uh, that, that's going on. And, uh, and, and there's, you know, there's, there's all this kind of, well, what do you think of this? You know, the diversity training and diversity inclusion training that's going on in corporations and universities, like how, like what's the, that's, is that based on CRT as well? Yeah, I definitely think it's based on CRT. Um, When I look at diversity, equity, and inclusion, it continues to separate people out. But it's also, in in its separating out, it is wanting to, through intersectionality, look at um, or bring people in to an inclusive space. But we have to remember that when we talk about being inclusive, it's not just about, you know, not, not, showing partiality to someone as or or favoritism or things like that no it's talking about bringing people in who have completely different worldviews from us it's talking about um you know being accepting of the lgbtq plus person and not just accepting but affirming and so creating safe spaces um across the board for you know people who who identify um, in ways that are not in line with Christianity. Now, if I'm in a secular work environment, no, I'm not going to, you know, be rude. I'm not going to show prejudice and things like that. But when it comes into the church and we uphold these tenets within the church, I think we have a lot of problems and we don't understand that we're setting ourselves up for all of these other social theories to creep into our churches as well. And so, and that's a good point. So how did CRT creep into the church? Oh, I don't know if people are ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> Get ready, folks. We're uh, about to hear think, it. I think it's through lack, one, lack of, of do- sound doctrine, lack of discipleship. We have within the church allowed culture to creep in. So while some people are like, you know, CRT is the biggest threat to Christianity. I don't believe that. I believe that the biggest threat to Christianity is our lack of teaching sound doctrine and our lack of discipleship. Amen. We've always had social theories. We've always had things that have threatened the church. 
And yet with our guard being down, these things have come into the church or we will send people out to say, hey, look, you know, we might have this issue with racism. Let me go read Ibram Kendi and figure out how to how to handle the issue of racism in my church. Well, in reality, you need to look in the scriptures to figure out how to handle the issue of racism within your church. That might be church discipline. That might be treating somebody like an unbeliever. But nobody's wanting to talk about that because church discipline and treating someone like an unbeliever is, you know, that's not, that's not going to win you any friends in our current, you know, conversations in Christianity. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think many evangelical pastors have read Robin D'Angelo's book, uh, White Fragility and other books like, like you just mentioned. And I think that's having this sort of detrimental effect because they, it's like, there's, there's this combo platter of white guilt but also kind of this like, you know, w- wanting to do the right thing, wanting rec- r- racial reconciliation in the church, because historically there has been issues with with racism in the church and and kind of segregated churches like the white suburban suburban church and like the black inner city church or whatever. And so there is there is something to that. But to as you said, to but bring- is there like. I think, yes, we can say that the black church started because of racism, right. because of men being pulled out or in, and congregants being pulled out of a church in Philadelphia. Yes, we can say that. But when, when I look at the church today, are we segregated because of preference? Are we segregated because of styles of worship? Or are we segregated because black people really aren't welcomed into white churches? I don't, I don't think that all of, I don't think that it's always down to the issue of race and racism. Well, you know, black people can't go to that church and worship. I think we we would, we'd be hard pressed to actually go to a church and say, well, black people aren't here because they're simply not wanted. Right. I think there's a lot of different cultural experiences. There's a lot of things that go into why someone chooses a church. And can I say that a lot of the segregation of churches started because of racism? Yes. I just don't know that that's where we end up, that we're, that's where we are today. So what is the solution? You know, because obviously not everyone in the country is a Christian. And I know the, I know the ultimate solution is Jesus. Like Jesus is the, the solution to racial uh, tension because, and I, t- I say this all the time that, um, you know, you're, you're, if you're a Christian and you're a racist, you're not going to like heaven because every tribe, tongue and nation right. is going to be there. So like, yeah, there's no, and then Paul in Galatians, he says, he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Basically there's no rate. Like there's no, neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither you know, slave nor free. That's a hot button word, but we won't get into that. There's yeah. no male or female. Cause we are all one in Christ Jesus. So the Bible is very clear about there's no distinction, you know, but my question is how do we, obviously in the church and with the gospel, we can help people in terms of racial reconciliation, but how do we do that in the secular world? How does that come about if we don't have CRT and BLM and so on and so, so forth? Gosh, I think that's such a good question. And it's really, um, not difficult to answer. I just don't think people like the answer. So I do think that the church is meant to be a light. I do think that we are meant to evangelize. I don't know that there's any hope for culture to have 
um, unity or racial reconciliation as outside of Christ. Because in John 17, we read about the unity that's been given to us, the, the unity that we have through him. And when he prays for our unity, we see what our unity is for. It's so that others would know. Others would believe that God loves them and that God sent him. And so when we look at, when we look at cultural unity, there's always going to be tribal groups. We are tribal people. There's always going to be people who want to siphon off and who are going to think of someone else better than or worse than themselves and that they are better than others. This is why the gospel and the scriptures offer us a better hope, because just like you read, we are one. So it's and more so, it's more like you're saying it's more like a, about our sinful, wicked hearts rather than about kind of a racial situation or, or CRT. It's, it's, yeah, like we're, it's always going to be about our sinful hearts. Yeah. And so I guess my, my last question to you is what, what would you say to pastors and to Christians who are kind of confused? You know, they posted black squares. They, they don't, the culture is, you know, it's like, I talk about the issue of homosexuality and it's like the culture is so powerful. And what do you say to people, to Christians and, and, and also to leaders in the church who who don't really know how, how to navigate this, don't know what to do and are just kind of at a loss. And so they're just sort of going along with it and they're buying the books, they're buying the, you know, white fragility and all the books. What do you say? What's your advice to them? Stop going along with culture. Go along with the word. The word, the word gives us all that we need for life and godliness. And it's up to us to, one, get into the word and to walk out the word, to disciple people in the word. But I don't have to go to White Fragility or Ibram Kendi or Derek Bell or um, Patricia Hill Collins or anyone else to understand how I live out life and godliness. Nor do I need to go to anyone else to understand the definition of justice. So... For Christian leaders, I would say, one, understand the word and get out of sociology. The sociology isn't your main textbook. Yeah. That would be my, my, first, um, my first, I guess, advice. And then it would be to be, get bold and know that your voice is meant to be light and hope in this world. Culture is never going to have what Christianity has. Culture is never going to have the hope that we have. But as long as we're looking to culture for our hope, and for wisdom, we're never going to be able to offer them anything anyway. Yeah. And I just think of, you know, it's, it's, you could really boil it down to just very, really one simple verse in the Bible. It's like the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. If you, there if you're actually loving your neighbor as yourself, there is no racism in the world. That That's like, it would be eradicated if every. Come on through Beckett. Come on. And preach. So, <laughs> yes. If I was in black church, I'd fan you. Come on. <laughs> Yes. Thank you so much, Monique, for, for doing this. I mean, this is such an important conversation and there's, there's so much more to be had. There's so much more, you know, to talk about, but um, I'm excited to see you in Minneapolis in a couple of weeks. Yes. uh, Also tell us where people can contact you, where where they can see your stuff and, and tell us all about that. 
Yes, so people can find us at our website, centerforbiblicalunity.com or on Facebook at Center for Biblical Unity. Instagram is the same, Center for Biblical Unity. And Twitter is biblical underscore unity. We actually have a curriculum out right now called Reconciled. And it talks about our reconciliation as Christians and then how to walk out unity. So we're family. You know, how do we walk out the unity that we've been given? Paul tells us to maintain the unity. That's Ephesians 4. So our curriculum talks about that, but you can find that all on our website, centerforbiblicalunity.com. Amazing. All right. Thank you so much, Monique. And I'll see Thanks. you soon. Thank I'll you guys for watching. Yeah, a couple of weeks. Thank you guys for watching. And we'll see you next time on the Beckett Cook Show. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. Life Audio presents Bridges with Monica Schmelter. That we have an enduring hope that can't be taken away when we are in Christ. And to know that we have that, right? And eternal salvation, because this world can be so busy and so dark that we can forget that, right? Right? Because sometimes I get caught in the trappings of what's going on in my life this moment. And while I have to recognize that, that's not it. Continue listening on lifeaudio.com or wherever you find your podcast.